All right, so we are uh, kicking off this uh, the Gospel of John series. Today is the beginning, and I think it's eight weeks or nine weeks or something like that. So we're going to spend some good time uh, in the Gospel of John. So Wendy and I, uh, we've been married, I think, oh, oops, that took too long to say. Uh, I think December is 24 years, so we'll be married 24 years. So which is, yeah, yeah, that's not what this is all about, but you know. That I am regularly amazed at how long it's been, actually, so it's good. But we've been married like 24 years. Shortly after we, uh, we were married, we were still in college, so we were pretty young. Um, uh, we, we took this class together. It was a gospel, uh, of G- a class on Jesus' life, and uh, it was on Wednesday nights for like two hours or something, and it was kind of like going to a Wednesday night Bible study. It was pretty extraordinary, and uh, the focus of the class, the professor was taking us through specifically the last couple of weeks of Jesus' life before he died on the cross and then the resurrection and time after. So it focused on the very um, last part of Jesus' time on earth. And a lot of it was taken from the gospel uh, of John. A lot of our time was spent there. So obviously there was a lot of emotion. If you're going to spend like three months or four months or whatever the class was, I think it might actually have been a full year, um, diving in and focusing on like the like events leading up to Jesus' death. So this is like him saying goodbye to his, all his friends, his last moments with all his friends. There's a little bit of emotion and sort of drama in all of that. And then uh, the horrors of his murder on the cross, and then the excitement of his resurrection, and then the super mixed emotions of his ascension, him leaving earth, and all that was happening as he said goodbye to his friends. Uh, so the class was super amazing. It was a pretty cool uh, class. The thing I think that may have st- stuck with me most through the course of my life from that class was the professor, actually. So this was this really old guy. He was like, I don't know, really old. Whatever you think of as really old, he was older than that. He was a really old guy. Uh, and it was like listening to this guy tell the stories of Jesus and all the connections he would make, and the way he would just kind of walk through um, Jesus' life, it was like you were listening to somebody who had been there, who was deep friends, that he had, been, he had talked with Jesus and shared his life with Jesus. That's what this was like as we were walking through the course of this class. And it was so inspiring to, one, to meet Jesus, but also to see someone know him that well and interact and share about his life uh, in that sort of a way. So we're starting this series looking at the Gospel of John, John's account of Jesus' life, this first century biography written by someone who was very close and spent a significant amount of time with Jesus. The uh, N.T. Wright is a historian and theologian. He has this to say about the Gospel of John. He says, the Gospel of John has always been a favorite for many, at one level, it is the simplest of all the Gospels. At another level, it's the most profound. It gives the appearance of being written by someone who was a very close friend of Jesus, who spent the rest of his life mulling over more and more deeply what Jesus had done and said and achieved, praying it through from every angle and helping others understand it. Countless people down the centuries have found that through reading this gospel, the figure of Jesus becomes real for them, full of warmth and light and promise. So my job today, given to me by Wendy and Alberto, the teaching team here at Everyday Church, is to introduce this book of John. 
and to get us excited about what we're going to be looking at and, uh, and hopefully to prepare us to meet Jesus in a new sort of way as we, uh, we dive in and get to know um, Jesus through the book, the Gospel of John. But to introduce this book, as I was prepping and trying to figure out, like, the whole focus today is just, like, kick this off and really get us into the book of John, I realized, like, I got to get into teacher mode um, to do that. And two weeks ago, if you were here, Marga, she was in teacher mode. And her teacher mode is like beast. It's like next level, fantastic, amazing. And I was like, I don't think I have that kind of teacher mode in me. I'm not sure I can pull it off. So please forget your experience with Marga two weeks ago. This is all new. This is Larry teacher mode, not Marga teacher mode. All right, so I also recognize, and I want to just sort of name this for us, that we have um, lots of different levels in the room of experience with the Bible, um, experience with Christian stuff and Christian ideas and Christian language. And there may be some times today and through the course of this series where you're kind of like, I already know all of this stuff. Uh, or there may be times where you're like, Larry, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I would just encourage you to hang on, because I think through the course of this time, we're all going to take some steps uh, forward in our understanding and experience uh, of Jesus. So let me give a quick side note as we get going. There is debate. Uh, there's debate about everything in life, right? Every, everything is debatable. You know, even if you're really sure of it, somebody out there will debate it with you. Um, that is especially true of everything that we're going to be talking about through the course of this series. There are different opinions about lots of different things. Um, when were the accounts of Jesus' life written? When, uh, who wrote them? Were there other accounts of Jesus' life that were lost or that were left out? And on and on and on the questions will go. And all of those questions are very real and important to process. And there's loads of books out there that process all of that stuff. Uh, we can't get into all the nitty-gritty details of those debates and wrestle through that all, this, all of that stuff. But I want you guys to know that when Alberto or Wendy or I, when we're standing up here, we are... Uh, it's kind of like a fruit of our journey, our own journey, of wrestling with teachers and historians and people who have processed those deep questions. And we're, Marga talked about, um, like, as teachers, it's really important that we're also learners. So what you're doing, what we're doing together is on this journey, kind of venturing together in learning and experiencing what the Gospel of John has together. And I want you to know that... Uh, there's work that's going on behind the scenes of us processing and wrestling and various resources that we use. And that stuff is available to you. So if you are interested and you want to know more about something, you're welcome to ask us. And we can kind of help you um, tie into or connect with some of the resources that we use as we're learning and growing. And Marga talked about, we learn together. It's most important that we're learners processing and growing together. And, uh, and that's really an important part of this series uh, as well. So, all right, that's all my disclaimers. Um, so let's, uh, let's dive in. So there are four accounts of um, Jesus' life preserved for us in the Bible. They're known as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These four accounts, they've been recognized by Christians and by the church for nearly 2,000 years as the best remaining accounts of Jesus' life that we have, that we can hold on to and, uh, and dig into. The four books, they're named for the individuals who were commonly accepted as the authors, as the original authors. So the names of the book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were chosen 
um, as kind of recognizing who the early church and early Christians believed the writers um, to be, uh, particularly in the first and second century Christians and church. So sometimes you will hear uh, them referred to as the Gospels. And that word gospel, it's an old word. Really, it just means good news. Uh, and the word gospel and the phrase good news has been used by Christians to refer to um, Jesus' life, what he, uh, what he taught, and what he accomplished through the course of his life. And so when you hear somebody say the gospel or the gospel account of John or the gospel of John that we're talking about uh, through this series, we're talking about John's account of Jesus' life of what he um, witnessed and understood to be Jesus' experience and what he accomplished through the course of his life. Uh, and the same is true for each of, uh, each of the four Gospels. So, interestingly, if you, uh, if you haven't studied and kind of looked at and compared the different Gospel accounts, Matthew Mark, Luke, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three of the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life, are very, very similar. So they have mostly the same stories and a lot of the same words um, that Jesus uh, said and things that he taught. In fact, 90% of what you find in the Gospel of Mark, you can also find in uh, Luke and Matthew. Uh, even at times, the same sort of language and phrasing. Now, each of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had different reasons for writing, and they presented it in different sorts of ways and different things they were accomplishing with the biography and the account that they were writing of Jesus' life. But the three of them are very, very similar. John is something very different. In fact, 90% of what John includes in his account of, of, of uh, Jesus' life is unique to John. 90% of what he writes, you can't find it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So there's a lot of different content that we find and discover as we dig into uh, the Gospel of John. He takes a very different approach to the book. He shares different events and uh, different teachings of Jesus. Uh, if you recall, I think it was last summer that we went through the gospel, um, through the parable series, where we looked at the different parables of Jesus. So parables were these sort of imaginative little stories that Jesus shared to teach an idea or get a concept across or to shock and get people's attention. So parables. John, no parables. He doesn't include any parables, any of Jesus' parables in his, uh, in his book, which is fascinating. So we see these different sort of differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then the way that John um, functions. In fact, John gives us a lot more information about uh, than the other three Gospels on the timeline, uh, kind of what the timing of Jesus' ministry was, and geographically where Jesus was going, at what point uh, he was moving around different places and visiting and doing different things. So John gives us a lot more information about timeline and geography. So he, uh, he uses a much different narrative st uh, style. As you're reading through and looking at John, you're going to find lo much longer stories and much longer dialogue and interaction with, uh, with others than you do. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to be much smaller snippets and real quick stories. And so a very different narrative approach that he, um, that he provides. And all of this is really good news for us 2,000 years removed from all of this because we're getting uh, a much more expanded picture as we look at the four accounts of Jesus' life. We, uh, we're getting different perspectives and different content in different times uh, presented uh, and, and even written for different audiences. Uh, and so we get these accounts of Jesus' life that are written for different folks with different cultural and life experiences. So it helps give us a broader 
perspective a couple thousand years later. So as an example, um, the first three Gospels are uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were likely written between 50 and 70 AD. So in the first century between 50 and 70. So Jesus left the earth around AD 30. Uh, so the first three accounts were written in the first 20 or 40 years following um, Jesus' life and ascension into heaven. The Gospel of John is uh, thought to have been written in the 90s in the first century. So it's 20 to 40 years later. And a lot of things had happened in society and culture in those in-between in years, from the time that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written until John is writing his um, account. A lot different struggles and different circumstances facing Christians and earlier followers of Jesus. This, uh, this is intriguing to me. It is almost guaranteed that the author of John had heard readings and probably even held the scrolls of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that he had interacted with and held them. He was friends with Matthew as a follower of Jesus. There's a good chance he was friends with Mark and Luke and met them at different points through the course of his, uh, their lives and his lives. And so uh, there's a really good chance that he had read and uh, even touched these accounts from these other, uh, these other guys and still set out. He knew the resources that the Christians of that day had available to them about Jesus' life and still chose to write uh, his own gospel and present uh, his perspective and what he was seeing and learned from Jesus. So I want to, uh, to take a little bit of time to process through John's story. Um, so the church uh, and the Christians in the first and second century considered uh, the author of this book, John, to be the Apostle John, uh, one of the 12 disciples who was a close friend of Jesus. That is who the Christians in the first, second century uh, considered to be the author of, um, of this book. Now, over the years, there have been other people that have been suggested uh, that maybe it was a different John or maybe it was somebody not named John at all. So there's some different names that have been thrown out over the, uh, over the years as other potential authors. But um, as Inti Wright said, it looks like the person who's writing is someone who is a very close friend. So whoever was writing this was very, very close to, uh, to Jesus. And I think there's good reason to trust the Christians and the church in the first and second century and who they believe to be um, the author of this book. So I want to take some time just to process through John the Apostle, uh, one of the twelve, this close friend of Jesus, to talk through his life because I, help, I think it helps us get a perspective on uh, what John was writing and why he, um, why he wrote the way he did. So this, uh, this guy, the Apostle John, he was considered to be a young man when he first met Jesus. There's a good chance that he was even a teenager when he first met Jesus and began uh, following Jesus. He was a, a fisherman by trade. He was in business with his brother, James, and uh, his dad, Zebedee. Uh, he was actually, this is something I hadn't noticed in the text before, but uh, John and his brother James were business partners with Peter, the Apostle Peter and Andrew. They were business partners. They were fisher. They were like, they shared a business together, James and John and Peter and Andrew and uh, at least their father Zebedee. Um, and Jane, uh, Andrew and Peter also of the 12 um, disciples. So John and his brother James left their dad and the fishing business that they had grown up in, along with Peter and James. All four of them um, ditched the fish, fishing business and, uh, and went to follow Jesus and eventually becoming uh, a part of his 12 disciples. So Jesus uh, had a nickname for these two brothers, John and James. His nickname for them was Sons of Thunder, which I'm like, that's kind of crazy. That If Jesus had a nickname for you, what would it be? 
you know, Sons of Thunder, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Why did you call me the Son of Thunder? There's a good chance that it was because of their personalities. Um, they were pretty intense at times. There were times where they just really came across in pretty intense ways. So there's a chance that Sons of Thunder was uh, a good choice, but this was Jesus' nickname um, for them. John and James, these two brothers, and their friend Peter, their business partner Peter, formed what uh, is sort of this inner circle of friendship with Jesus. The three of them shared uh, a very unique relationship with Jesus, different than the other 12 and the other disciples that were around and following Jesus at the time. These three get invited into very unique experiences. They witness some extraordinary sort of hidden moments uh, in Jesus' life. They're with him uh, seeing different miracles that others didn't see. They, uh, they're with Jesus at times of deep, deep anguish and emotion and pain that Jesus is experiencing. And so we see as we look through the stories uh, of Jesus' life uh, that James and John and Peter have this sort of unique relationship and friendship that they enjoy. In fact, John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So what exactly that means we don't know. It's not that Jesus didn't love the other disciples, but he, he loved John. Uh, but it's a phrase that's sort of indicative of this unique relationship that John and James experienced. And you see that in their interactions, and I think as you uh, process through the gospel account uh, that John writes down for us. So um, John was uh, at the cross when Jesus died. He was so close to the foot of the cross, not like in a crowd in a distance. He was right at the foot of the cross so that he and Jesus could talk. And some of Jesus' final words are to John, asking John to take care of his mother Mary. And, in, and we're told in the text that John took Mary into his home and cared for her from that point on. So this unique even moment in the final um, minutes of Jesus' life in the relationship between these two. John also was the first man to arrive at the tomb the morning that Jesus um, came uh, back to life. Mary, we're told, is the first person. This woman was the first person that got to, uh, to see the empty tomb. And then Mary runs back to Peter and John and tells them, like, his body's not there. Something's going on. And John, I think, I don't know if he's being funny, but it's funny. Um, John tells us that Peter takes off running, and then John takes off running. And John passes him and gets to the tomb first. Really important details to realize who runs faster. In that moment when we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, like, I just need you guys to know that I am faster than my friend Peter. He's kind of slow. So whatever reason that's there, um, John apparently left second but arrived um, first. So, uh, so we get this sort of unique perspective of this guy and his life and his relationship with Jesus and what was going on um, through the course of his time with Jesus. We also know from the book of Acts that John's brother James, who was, uh, they were close and uh, both uh, of the 12 disciples, James was murdered not long after Jesus left the earth uh, because he was a follower of Jesus. And this is fascinating to me, that some number of years later, John is one of the first church leaders to welcome Paul into the church. Paul, after his conversion, before Paul's conversion, he went around arresting and torturing and killing Christians. 
So James, John, who had this experience of his own brother being murdered because he was a follower of Jesus, is one of the first people to welcome Paul into the church and into fellowship and into the family, this guy who was responsible for the death and torture of other Christians. So all of these things we learn about John from the gospel accounts and Acts and other parts of the New Testament. Church tradition tells us even more. Uh, including that um, it would seem that John was the only of the 12 disciples to die of old age. He was the only of them who wasn't murdered at some point in his life because he was a follower of Jesus. Um, Tradition holds that he likely wrote this account of Jesus' life around um, AD 90, so in the 90s in the first century. If he was a teenager, interesting to think about this, if he was a teenager or in his, even in his early 20s when he was with Jesus around 30 AD um, during Jesus' ministry, that would put him around 80 years old when he wrote this book. So this is an old guy who's lived a long time, uh, who's followed Jesus for 60 plus years and is writing his account, his experience and what he wants us to know um, about Jesus. So listen again to what N.T. Wright uh, wrote, what I read just a little bit, bit ago. The Gospel of John gives the appearance of being written by someone who was very close, a very close friend of Jesus, who had spent the rest of his life mulling over more and more deeply what Jesus had done and said and achieved in his life, praying it through from every angle and helping others understand it. For 60 years or more, John followed Jesus. For 60 years, he relived and he reflected on his time and his friendship and his experience walking and sharing life with Jesus. For 60 years, he watched his brother and his fellow 12 disciples and countless other Christians be murdered. He watched as countless followers tried to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to live like Jesus and to love like Jesus. For 60 years, he shared his experience with people. He told his stories, and he wanted people to understand what he had learned and experienced in his time with Jesus. He watched the church struggle over this time. He's heard Matthew and Mark and Luke and Uh, seen what they had to write and and how important it was for them to speak from their experience into the challenges of the 50s and the 60s in the first century. As the last remaining of the 12 disciples, I wonder what burned inside of John? What made him say, I've got to write this down for my fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus? What led him to write his account of Jesus' life and to do it in such a unique and special way? way. So let's talk for, uh, for a few moments about the people for whom John was writing his gospel account. So uh, it's clear as you dig into the complexity of the book uh, of the gospel of John that John was very intentional in the way he structured and what he was doing as he was writing. He, he's not just jotting down memories of his time with Jesus, just, you know, writing little stories that he remembered. It wasn't this sort of just accidental or incidental sort of writing an account of Jesus' life. He's constructing a very particular biography in a very particular way for specific reasons. And I think a lot of those reasons have to do with the people that he was writing to, the people that he was encouraging and giving this message message and and sharing his experience 
um, with and the situation and the society that those people found themselves in. So in large part, John um, was writing to followers of Jesus of his day. So his, uh, when you look at kind of what he's writing, it's clear, and we'll read some things in just a moment that kind of reveal this, that John is writing to followers of Jesus, people who are um, believers. And many, uh, maybe even most of those believers were, Jew, were Jews, including John himself, who was a Jew. So at the center, we have the followers of Jesus, largely Jewish, and those believers are set in a certain context. So they don't exi exist in a vacuum. The people he's writing to exist in a context. And because they're Jewish, and they, um, they're in primarily, their kind of close context would be a Jewish context, Jewish culture and Jewish people kind of surrounding them. So Christianity, we know, was born out of Judaism. In fact, in, for many years, it was considered a sect of Judaism, like, uh, think of it like a flavor of Judaism, that Christianity was a flavor of Judaism among other flavors of Judaism. So Jewish Christians, they gathered at the synagogues with other Jews. That's kind of their place because they were Jewish. They read the same Hebrew scriptures. They enjoyed much of the same cultural experience and expression of Juda Judaism. In their case, these were Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah that the Hebrew Scriptures talked about, that they were all waiting for and looking forward to coming. So John is writing to these followers of Jesus, many of whom are living in a Jewish context, in Jewish culture. But at the same time, they, uh, the larger context that everyone is in is very important to what John is writing and what we'll discover as we get into this, uh, this series. That everyone was living, not just the Christians in this sort of Jewish primary um, subculture, but the larger culture of this sort of Greek and Roman reality that they were living in. Greek, the main language that was spoken at the time, Rome rules the land, and so Roman figures and authorities and power structures and all of that exist all around them. And the worldview and the philosophies, the way people thought, the way people looked at life was predominantly of Greek influence. So you have this Jewish culture, subculture that they exist in, and then this larger Roman and Greek uh, and Greek influence, Greek philosophy, Greek thinking influenced culture that they find themselves in. So uh, times are changing. So by the time John is writing, different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, times have changed. Things are happening. Some major things are going on. One of those things is that many of the Jewish synagogues and the Jewish people no longer viewed Christians as a part of Judaism. So Christians were viewed as Jew. They rose up out of Judaism. Jesus was a Jew, the whole, all within the Jewish system. Christianity was born in that, but the Jewish people of the day were beginning to see Christians as something else. They're not among us. They're not, you can't call yourself a Jew. You're not here. So that meant something very important and very specific for the Christians. They were beginning to be pushed out of the synagogue. So in the Roman world, much of the Roman system um, deified the emperors of Rome. So these emperors are being raised up as if they were gods, and all Roman citizens and people in the Roman Empire were expected to worship those gods, except the Jews. The Jews were giving exemption. They didn't have to follow this worship practice of the Roman environment. So if Christians are Jews, then they're also exempt. But if they're not Jews, they're no longer exempt. And they have to begin falling in line with this larger Roman reality of worship. And so 
persecution begins to happen at different times and different places it rises up. Uh, and certainly where John was living and writing, it was a very real reality. The Christians were being pushed out of the synagogue and experiencing this pressure from the Roman government to worship um, the emperor. So that is happening. There's also a variety of false teaching and ideas that are flying around. The church leaders are, in many cases, beginning to doubt whether Jesus was fully God. So um, how can this human also be God? And others on the other side are doubting Jesus' humanity. Yeah, he's God, but was Jesus really human? Maybe he's not God, maybe he's not human, and these questions and struggle is happening inside of the church. And so Jesus' followers are losing their way. They're losing sight of who is this Jesus that we've been following all of these years. And so John sets out, <clears throat> sets out to write uh, an account of Jesus' life in this Jewish Greek, Roman sort of, sort of environment and context and all the things that his brothers and sisters in Christ were facing. So take a look at um, John chapter 20. This is something that John writes towards the very end uh, of, of the book. He says, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones that I've recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by power in his name. So we get to see as we work through this and process what John was up to, get a glimpse of the context uh, of his writing and what he was uh, attempting to accomplish in the way that he presented Jesus' life. So the structure of John and the themes that he weaves through are... Um, really beautiful, and uh, we're going to touch on different of those themes as we go through this series. Uh, but I want to encourage you, if you want a place to just kind of uh, watch some videos and do some interacting with the book of John, I really encourage you to check out thebibleproject.com. They have some great videos on the book of John. They have this thing that they do for each book in the Bible. They call it a poster, I think, where they create this large sort of graphic um, presentation of the structure and arrangement and the main topics in the book. And uh, the one for John is super cool. So I would encourage you to go to the Bible Project and uh, watch some videos, check out the poster and uh, other resources that they have there for John and other parts of the Bible. So it's a really good kind of starting point as you're interacting and diving into uh, studying uh, through the Gospel of John. So in our last bit of time together, I want to, um, I want to spend some time just reading through the first paragraphs, the early paragraphs in the Gospel of John, what he has to write. It actually begins with a poem. Uh, he starts by writing a poem, um, and then he begins to do some teaching following that. And uh, it's really pretty cool and beautiful. So we're going to spend some time uh, just reading through. I'm going to read it out loud. I've got a sheet for you guys to follow along with. And, uh, and then we'll um, spend some time kind of di uh, digging in a little bit to some of the first parts of this introduction. So if a couple people could help me hand out some stuff. So English on one side, Spanish on the other. The English translation that I use here is the New Living Translation. 
so if you're familiar with reading through um, this part of John, the wording may be slightly different than what you're um, accustomed to, what you're used to, but uh, I think the New Living Translation does a really good job of kind of expressing what um, John was getting into in the Greek uh, language that he was writing in um, originally. So, all right, so I'm going to read down. You can kind of follow along as I read, and, uh, and then I'm going to give you a few minutes just quiet to reflect on um, and reread down through there. So let's read, follow along, John 1, verse 1 to 18. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the world, to the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son, John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said, someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From from his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after the other. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and his faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He's revealed God to us. So take a couple minutes and just read back through what we read there. Look for spots that jump out at you and stir something inside of you. So look at the beginning of the poem that John writes there. In the beginning, John's starting words, in the beginning. Sound familiar to you, in the beginning? All the way back to the first words in the Bible, John chooses to start his account of Jesus' life by using the same words that we find in Genesis, the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, the the story of God bringing order to chaos in the cosmos. It's as if John wants us to move and shift our attention back to that point. It's as if God is up to something new or at least there was something going on in that moment 
that a new dimension that John wants us to see. And so he uses these words in the beginning. And for a Jewish person living a couple of thousand years ago, they definitely would have understood that John was doing something meaningful here, that he was drawing their attention back to the beginning of things. In the beginning, the word, John says. So let's stop there. We need to talk a little bit about this. So I spoke about context um, that John was writing into, so that he was writing into this Jewish uh, people in a larger Greek society, a Greek worldview and philosophy. Uh, and so John is writing into a specific context. So for us, when we're reading this, it's very easy for us to miss what John is up to. That John is doing something very specific, but it's easy for us in English to miss what's, um, what's happening. But for a Jewish Christian at that point in time, or anyone living within this Greek-influenced society, they wouldn't have missed what John was doing here. In the beginning, the word. John uses a very specific word. In the beginning was the word. Most, uh, most translations you'll read will put a capital letter on that, so a capital W. In Spanish, it's el verbo with a capital V. Uh, John didn't write in English or Spanish, so that doesn't help us a great deal. But uh, he wrote in Greek, the language of his time. So the word that he used was logos or logos. So John says, in the beginning, logos, word, verbo, logos. So to say the word or el verbo today doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but for John to say logos at that point in time means something very significant, something that's really been lost among Christians at this point uh, in time, into his context of Jewish and Greek um, folks. So for the Jewish audience, think about the people who would have had Jewish experience and understood Hebrew scripture and kind of in that world uh, of, of the Jewish people. Logos was a very common concept, something that, that would have been readily available to them when they heard that word. They knew what he was talking about. So the idea here is of God's divine reason. For a Jewish person at that point thinking about logos, it was this idea of God's reason, his will, his intent for the world and in the world. The word of the Lord, God's word, these were common sayings for Hebrew people at the time and in Hebrew scripture. So it was, it's really important to understand, it was not about something that had been written down. It wasn't about a written word. He wasn't taught, when he said logos, or they heard the word logos, they weren't thinking the Bible or scripture. They were not thinking about something that had been written down or documented. Logos represented God's thinking, his reasoning, his, uh, what was expressed, his thinking and reasoning expressed through his world, taking action, through his words, taking action in the word world. Logos represented that full sort of internal and external um, understanding. God's thoughts and reasons flowing from God to have an effect and affect the reality of the world and humanity. So that's the Jewish mind. That's what they would have heard and understood hearing this word logos. Now, for the Greek world, uh, it's interesting. I think actually you could make a case that this idea of logos was possibly as rich and deep in the rest of the non-Jewish world, in Greek philosophy, as it was in the Jewish world. That philosophers, as far back as the 6th century BC, and even before that, they were wrestling with this idea. They were perceiving in the cosmos some sort of order and form and meaning. There was something going on in the cosmos in the mind of a Greek philosopher and the people for generations and generations and um, centuries. 
that they were trying to understand and give words to, that it seemed to them that there was something deeper at work, there was some transcendent force, some reality that was at work ordering and uniting the cosmos. And what did they call that force? Logos. That was the word that they would use to represent this idea that there's something more going on in the universe, ordering and bringing order to the cosmos around us. Uh, Heraclitus in the 6th century BC, the Stoics, Zeno of Sidium in the 4th and 3rd century BC, uh, Plato, Philo in the 1st century, on and on and on. We have these philosophers and people wrestling with this idea that there's something at work in the cosmos, logos, as an active, rational, maybe even spiritual principle that permeated reality. Lagos as reason, providence, Lagos as nature, Lagos as the soul of the universe, this thing that they understood and perceived, they referred to it as Lagos. So when John chose this word, he was choosing a word that had significant meaning both to the Jewish context and to the larger um, Greek-influenced world. In the beginning, Lagos. And with just those few words, John links the rest of what he's going to be writing to the ordering of the cosmos in the beginning and the force that is at work uniting reality and uniting humanity. And from there, he then takes us into totally uncharted territory. All of us, Jews, Greeks, Romans, all of us since then. He moves us from Lagos as an impersonal force a lifeless, abstract, philosophical concept that existed in the minds of the people of his time, and he moves us from there to the idea of a living being that is active and at work in the cosmos. So take a look again at verse 1, and I'm going to read just a little bit down through here. In the beginning, the word already existed. In the beginning, logos already existed. The word was with God, that with meaning distinct, separate from, beside, there with God. And the word was God. He was both with God and actually God. He, now John gives, uh, personifies, turns it into a being. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Lagos. And nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created. He, the Word, this Word being, is the very source of life. And His life brought light, understanding, awareness to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse 10, He came into the very world He created, but the world didn't recognize Him. He came to His own people, and even they rejected Him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave them the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So this word became human, made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Verse 16, from his abundance We have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed 
God to us. The word, el verbo, logos, God in human flesh, making his home among us as humans, full of unfailing love and faithfulness, bringing light, bringing life, making a new family, forming this family for us to be a part of. You want to know God? You want to know what God is like? John says, come meet Jesus, my friend, my Lord, Logos. And thus begins the Gospel of John. Let me pray for us as we... um, enter into this adventure of the Gospel of John.